privilege of speaking with a good friend of mine that uh, I've just met uh, a month ago, but I'm, I feel like I know you for so long, Nimiko, because everything you stand for, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And uh, such a pleasure to be here with you, to speak with you today. How are you, Nimiko? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, so uh, before I s start with introducing you, I think it would be best that you tell us about, uh, about yourself, who you are, uh, where you're from, uh, and a bit about what you're doing today. Um, yes, yeah, so I am an anti-FGM activist and writer from London, but originally from East Africa, Somaliland, which is um, a, a country which is unrecognized. But I was I always say to you that we're called the Jews of the Horn because we are all like one ethnic minority in that part of um, the world. And at the moment, I'm running a foundation called the Five Foundation, which is the global partnership to end FGM by 2030. And I think I'm kind of... A, I think a lot of people will consider me as a troublemaker, but I'm trying to be a peacemaker in the world. <laughs> uh, to make peace, sometimes you have to make some trouble. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and it's uh, it's personal to you, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, yeah, FGM, so which is female genital mutilation, and it, and it affects like 200 million women globally, is a personal thing to me because I had it when I was seven um, on my way back to the United Kingdom from um, Djibouti. So yeah, it's something that I'm massively passionate about um, because I know the pains of it. And I also know the reality of what it takes to end because I've spent, so I'm 37 now, but I've spent almost, yeah, 30 years of my life thinking about it. But predominantly the last 20 years, I've really like, you know, understood what it takes to end FGM. And ultimately that is about empowering women on the continent of Africa. And how do you do that? How do you empower women well, in Africa? So for me, it's like, so... Okay, let's just. I think women are already um, empowered in the in in the sense that they know what they want and what they don't want. But what it is, it's about economic empowerment. It's about actually giving women the ability to be able to have voice and agency. And I know a lot of people might be anti-capitalist, but capitalism does that. Being able to have your own money gives you agency. So my thing is to really talk about the economic empowerment of women, the economic justice. Like if you put money in the hands of women, then they have. Um, choices and and every single woman that I know, um, whether it's, it's it's on this side of the planet or the other, um, or or in the developing world, have always when they have money, when they have access to education, have always chosen a better life for themselves and their community. So I ultimately think it's about providing opportunities. I think it's a very west, like a very imperialist thing to say that we're going to come with all the ideas and the answers. They they already have the ideas. We just need to be able to give them the financial support for that. I see. And, and you wrote an open letter just about this topic recently to the donor community. Uh, can you tell me more about the open letter? How did it came about and, and what you were hoping to achieve with that? Yeah, so I wrote an open letter about um, because essentially one of the things that international development and the way that we give aid is very much structured, is very racist and sexist. It's like we assume that if we go there with power and money, then we can basically uh, you know, educate and empower people and emancipate them. And we all the time, like a lot of the programs that are being funded by um, bilaterals, whether it's the United Nations or whether it's like G7 or G4M or, or permanent member um, countries of the UN are being funded, are programs that are picked up from ideas that were already given by people that were on the ground that were in those communities. So I wrote a letter saying that we need to change the way, the imperialist way that um, aid is structured. So rather than having this saviour complex, we need to be giving 
um, people the, the ability to be able to lift themselves out of poverty. Like poverty doesn't happen because people are dumb or because they're black or all these things. It happens because injustices are able, like you know, are allowed to um, to breed. And one of those main things is about women not having access to education, healthcare, and the, and the ability to choose who who they want to be married to. So yeah, so I thought post COVID. This is a real opportunity to build back better by looking at the way which we give money, which we give charity, essentially. And charity shouldn't be about um, looking at saving somebody, but it should, but it should be about standing in solidarity with people and communities. And some would say, and I know that, I mean, my in my work in the Israeli Defense Forces, I was working a lot with the UN, with the United Nations and its agencies, uh, in in the uh, uh, the disputed territories in the West Bank, um, and I've seen a lot of times that um, their uh, the way that they operate, uh, you know, is is very specific and very um, often it's it's giving money to um, 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 to specific communities, but not in a way of giving of just giving money, rather than giving money with the agenda of keeping those people in their place and not help and not allow them to evolve. Do you think there's something to do with um, uh, there's something that we need to do with how this money is being distributed or some mechanism that can ensure that um, uh, the money that is given to these women or, or to uh, or in general uh, the, the money that is funding those uh, 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 those communities um, is being uh, handled properly or um, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, I definitely do because it, there, there, there's this instant where the fact that the UK is very bureaucratic and very good at reporting how it spends every penny. But if you look at, is it value for money? As a business, it would not actually um, stay um, afloat. For 75 years, the United Nations has been, like, you know, going. I, as somebody who was a child refugee, as somebody who basically has worked in the sector and also seen people go through the sector, um, I can't actually 100% say the United Nations is perfect and it should and it should, and, and and it should exist for for another 75 years. The idea is actually it shouldn't need to exist for another 75 years. For me, that is the problem. Is that for me, we started a foundation a year and a half ago. And I want to be out of business within the next three years, let alone the next decade where FGM is, where we're, we're hoping to end FGM by then. But if we change the narrative and how um, funding is given and we make um, women's organisations sustainable and be able to be trusted, then I should be out of business within the next 18. Actually, I could be out of business in the next 18 months and I want that to happen. But many of the um, UN agencies, the UN itself and um, NGOs work in order to keep itself going there are there are massive organizations um which i won't name who have been going for 100 years and they're, and they're celebrating for having existed for 100 years i think that's a failure if your if your premise was to save children from starvation and, and 100 years later you've just got bigger and you're making the same arguments again and again i think then you need to actually think about your own strategy and, and the way that, that you're doing things so yeah i do think that sometimes NGOs um are not the way to go in, in a disaster situation when 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 we have to trace people we have to get food and things that's like you know that's needed because that they, they have the ability to have the um logistics to do that but in a long term way like you know NGOs and UN agencies to to do not work it's it's about community organizations it's about localizing those services Wow, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I've worked with so many UN agencies that I just constantly felt that, I mean, I, I can give a few examples like UN OCHA and uh, uh, UNRWA and 
um, other UN agencies that it almost felt like their whole mission is to just uh, justify their existence and com- continue to uh, not create disasters, but just maintain um, conflicts. And um, I mean, uh, it, it, this 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 example of UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency for the Palestinians, Palestinian refugees, um, they're all mandated to just keep themselves uh, uh, alive and keep their yeah. existence. And they invented a new, uh, you know, refugeesness that um, that Palestinians can pass their refugee in generations, even if even if they have uh, citizenship. And it's not a way to to try and and, and tackle a conflict or or a, or a serious issue and a challenge like this. No, no, definitely, I completely agree with you, and that's like, and that's what, and that's what I mean. It's like you look at, like, you know, massive um, refugee, um, like, you know, camps in like in Kenya, um, in Jordan, all these places. It's like there is very little that's actually being done in order on a political level. So the UN will say, "Oh, we're non-political. We have to be neutral." You can't be neutral in in the face of in, in, in injustice, and that's one of my kind of things. It's like you have to have a political. Um, you, you need to find the political solutions in order to be able to fix the crisis that people are in. But if you're just always out there saying, oh, yeah, whatever, um, we're, we're, we're just going to keep funding the same kind of thing, then you are literally perpetuating the same kind of myths which you were created to end. And you are making your, you are getting bigger, rather, and you are getting bigger and the problem is getting bigger. So you're not actually achieving anything. So in a in a business sense, I think the UN will not get any. I don't think as a startup anybody will actually buy into the UN at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally agree. But um, I would you know I'm I'm trying to be cautious. On the one hand, I'm very optimistic because I met you and I know how uh, you're as inspiring as they get. I mean, I just meeting you once just kept me so um um I mean I was so uh, inspired and so hopeful um after this meeting but but still I'm I'm kind of afraid that you are going against this massive beast that is the United Nations with all of their funding and all of their power with world countries and leaders do you think you stand a chance against them so so my thing actually my thing is not to get rid of the UN but is actually really be able to um change the structural the structure of the United Nations. So at the moment, it's like I'm not anti the UN, but I'm but I'm but I'm but I'm anti the structure and the bureaucracy of it. And what so what um so, so what happens is that unless you actually adapt something, then it becomes um very much um like you know, vulnerable to, to those people that want to destroy it. So I think that the UN has massive um um like you know ro- role to play in terms of setting mandates and doing all these kind of things. But then you have to look at the way that it actually operates. It's where the fact that nobody says anything about China, but we're always saying stuff about Israel. Nobody says anything about um, Iran, but we're always saying stuff about Israel. So I'm thinking there are massive problems with with the United Nations that many of the world want to be able to address, but we're still thinking it's too sacrilegious. And if you ever think anything's too sacrilegious, that's when it becomes problematic. My grandfather, God, 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 rest his soul, said to me about politics and about things that we love. Never love any, never love and praise anything to the point that you can't criticize it, and never dehumanize anybody or anything to the fact that you can't have any compassion for it. So I think that the UN has a role to play, but I don't actually think that it's so sacrilegious that we can't um, update it. So I think I think there's a massive role with the Security Council in, in terms of. Um, two members of the Security Council at the moment, both China and Russia, are not people that I would want to have around my table. But then at the moment, if 
you look at social media, you, you would think that our biggest enemy was Macron for, for saying the fact that we need to be able to address ISIS and extremist Islamists that are saying that democracy is a bad thing. So I think we're in a position where if we think that something is too um, too too holy, too, um, to condemn or to criticise, then it's going to fall to the side. And then we have the issues like, some, like you know, um, countries like Israel to the point where nobody wants to defend it when actually it hasn't actually done anything in order for it to get the um to to, to get the pylon that that um, um that it does on a day to day basis on, on the UN. So I think I think my criticism from of the UN comes from a loving perspective, not from somewhere that wants to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was when I was saying uh, going against this uh, massive beast, I, I, I mostly meant the uh bureaucracy and people that want to keep it as it is and i and i fully hear you i mean uh yeah um, i think it was james baldwin baldwin that once says that uh in order to criticize something you need to love it and james baldwin loved america and that's why he criticized a lot of the racial issues and i think that's where you're coming from yeah and definitely and i know that i'm gonna so basically it's a bit like when you um shake a lot of weak men for for being a strong woman i think a lot of the people that will will come at me and will go really um anti who, who, who I am for actually speaking the truth about the United Nations or about NGOs and the way that um that bilateral give their money is people that who actually have um are benefiting from the inequality and the structural racism within the system rather than the people that are being affected by it and for me I could be either or I think that's the thing that I like you know by by the grace of God, I have the privileges that I do, but by by luck of sliding doors, I could also be somebody that's in recipient of UN um, funding in a, re- a refugee camp at the moment. If I wanted to do, if I wanted to be, I could work at a high level of the United Nations, but I would rather be humble and grounded enough to say, actually, I believe in this agency. I believe that it can do good, but this is but what what we're doing at the moment is actually not delivering for those that really need it. Right, absolutely, and I, I absolutely love this approach. Um, and you mentioned uh, how the UN is uh, uh, is anti-Israel, and uh, I am speaking to you from Tel Aviv right now, and I think it's something that many Israelis are experiencing. We feel like there's this bias, but then it starts with the UN, it starts in academia, it starts with many thought leaders. Um, but actually, when we first met, uh, you told me that Israel can be a model for combating FGM. Um, why do you think that? Yeah, so basically Israel is the only country um, in record with it. So FGM, female genital mutilation, has been a thing for 4,000 years. And Israel is the only um, country in the world which has ended it within its diaspora population. So um, the Ethiopian um, um, diaspora that came to um, Israel had, like, um, Ethiopia still has a high percentage of FGM into the um, high 70s, into the 80% range. And the community that came to live in um, in Israel in the nineties um, and the eighties all were practicing FGM, and within a decade, that all died out. So Israel is a model of not just like you know assimilation and into an integration, but the ability to actually give people to be able to really understand their culture and their beliefs without necessarily having the harmful practices that they might have come from somewhere else. So FGM predates all the books of faith. So um, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, there is no book of faith that actually um, mentions FGM as a required act of um, 
obedience to any kind of faith and the fact that the Ethiopian population in Israel came with FGM and now that you have a generation or two generations of girls that are living without it I think that's a that's an incredible thing that the UK hasn't achieved and no other diaspora country has actually received um, achieved what is the situation in the UK in the UK um, in regards to FGM so in the UK, we have around 137,000 um, women and girls living with the consequence of FGM. Most of those are not British born. They came here with FGM. But um, but that but that still means there are like, you know, hundreds of thousands of girls that could potentially be at risk. The UN has done, uh, sorry, the UK has done some, some great work on the issue. And I'm very proud of to have led that. But ultimately, we still have more to do because as the as the diaspora generate as the diaspora population changes to um to West African communities which have a stronger link to the issue of FGM, then it makes it harder for us to be able to um to to um, to be able to say that we're tackling the issue as once we were doing quite well about like you know three four years ago. Right. Um. Well, I I. I think that if there's a way to connect I'm, I'm all for any way to connect Israel and Africa I think um, it, uh, it's an obvious connection that we have to make and I think there's a, a lot that Israel can learn from uh, African countries and and, um, and vice versa um, so um, I, I can't wait for uh, COVID to uh, to be under control that uh, you can come visit here and um, and uh, we can promote that together. Um, so I'm really looking. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really like, I'm so excited to come to um, Israel. It's been one of my kind of great passions to do that. And I think what the whole continent of Africa and many countries within that um, know it's that sense of isolation. And I think Israel is a testament to um, real re- re- resilience against, like you know massive um, international uh, boycotts and all these things that people have 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 tried to do you have prospered and and you prospered because it was like the whole point it is your destiny it's like we are a country we are people that want to be self-sufficient we want to be able to um, achieve things and I come from a country which is similar to that in um, in North Somalia which is called Somaliland and it is that so we've been unrecognized for 31 years but we've just kind of just sucked up and got on with it we haven't had um, we, we haven't had like you know all our neighbors we had one of our neighbors but not all our neighbors as being as as hostile as they have been to israel but i think israel is a testament and a blueprint for many of the countries in africa yeah that's that's amazing i mean uh, you uh i was i was thinking something similar but i think you really um helped me sharpen this uh, uh this thought and um um, if talking about uh, isolation, um, um, many British Jews in the recent elections in the UK uh, felt uh, that they were isolated as Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party, was accused, um, uh, rightfully so, I must say, uh, in, in making anti-Semitic statements and, and, uh, and being very um, anti-Semitic to, uh, towards the, uh, the, Jewish, the, the UK Jewish population, so much so that almost uh, 90% of British Jews uh, found him to be an anti-Semite. Uh, and many of them were also saying that they considered leaving the UK uh, if he will be elected prime minister. Luckily, he wasn't elected, um, but and you know he was removed from the Labour Party after investigation and recently returned. Um, but uh, putting him aside, in general, I feel like there's many Jews in in the UK. Uh, British Jews feel like that um, uh, their um, their well-being or their safety is at risk uh, with the rise in anti-Semitism um, in the country. Um, have you had any, um, I mean, 
what is your thoughts on it in, in general? Yeah, so do you know what? I am like, so like Somaliland, where, where, where I'm from, we were called the Jews of the Horn and there was like anti-Semitic um, tribe that was kind of pumped through the narratives of the whole, so um, the whole of Somalia in order to justify and to legitimize the murder of many of the men I loved, my uncles, we lost the whole generation of my family. And I've always been sensitive to that. I remember when we came back from Somaliland, so when, so Somaliland was still the north of Somalia, there, I remember coming back and we were, um, so we were living in Manchester at the time and the largest population of Somalis in the UK and until the freedom of movement in Europe were Somalilanders and every single person that came up for us were the Jewish community whether it was in North London, whether it was in East London, whether it was in Bristol, no, no, so Cardiff, um, Manchester. I was I, I was in Manchester at the time, and it was the Jewish community that understood the pain of being, like, persecuted just for your bloodline. And right. I have always been very sensitive to anti-Semitism. And I, like, you know, most of my friends when I was growing up as, a, as like, you know, as a child in, in the playground were Jewish and then I grew up into a um a more kind of wider community of and I, and I didn't know many Jewish people when I was going to high school and I would always be like I would I I would always be the one person um in high school and at university weirdly that would always be pro-Israel or I I would never say oh let me play the devil's advocate because I just think the devil doesn't need an advocate and Israel doesn't like I don't need to justify Israel's um Israel's existence in an anthropo in an anthropological kind of like oh the theory of why they should exist I'm like they have a right to exist and then I so, that, so when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party I saw it like so like legitimized to say anti-Semitic things at dinner tables in well-meaning middle class um lefty like you know t and I would just be shocked I was just thinking like like what are you actually saying that's not okay that's not okay and then towards like 2018 2019 um I saw myself that more and more of my friends became my Jewish friends we just all kind of congregated together because you could just sense this kind of and like you know the anti-semitism becoming a normality and for me I like you know it's this pain I feel in my gut is that when anti-semitism becomes the norm that is when we know that humanity is actually doomed and for me as a Muslim woman who's black who came from um a community that was persecuted it's like every every being of me is persecuted on a day-to-day -day basis and for me to stand against anti-semitism is to stand against the most principled form of racism because when 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 anti-semitism starts everything else is then legitimized so i'm not gonna lie to you 2019 and it's not getting any that much better now but at least we've at least we've made the decision 2019 was a massively painful year for me because most of my friends were um the most of the friends I loved were Jewish and most of my Somali friends or the people that I grew up with who basically could have looked like me, who actually came from the same who actually saw war and saw what um anti-Semitism can do, were just all basically just saying, Well, that's fine, it's not like, you know it, I, I honestly it was just like as though because I, I, according to them all Jewish people were white and all Jewish people were, were rich so what the fuck was I talking about and I was just thinking I can't even believe you're saying that and even if all Jewish people were white and all Jewish people were were um were rich doesn't necessarily mean that you can't dehumanize them so yeah it's like it was a scary time and even on election night I was um I was in a lift and I said to the runner I said I'm actually really nervous 
like and he said why, why, why are you nervous and then I said like you know Jeremy Corbyn and he's and he looked at me and he said yeah I know I'm Jewish so that was that was literally what was going on in 2019 that people had to whisper they were Jewish because if they said it out loud in a pub they thought they might get attacked and we would be sitting wow. in rooms and having and honestly it was really like it scared me because it reminded me of when I was a child when my grandparents and everybody else had to lie about their bloodline and I just I just thought I just thought this is not this is not the country that I want to live in and the idea that people can just kind of dismiss it saying oh we're not really racist we're just talking about the state of Israel and, and then when you say to them but what about what, what do you mean about the state of Israel and then it would lead to always like so-called anti-Zionism would always lead to anti-Semitism it's like the whole point is they don't necessarily believe the Jewish people exist so therefore why should they have a country it's just like it's just, right. it's just it's so it's so it was honestly it was really really scary and when I meet most of my um friends now it's just weird to think that a lot of these people had bought house in Israel and were, they, they were all going to leave yeah, and and perhaps that's uh, the important question to to pose to anti-Zionists. If you're, you know, if you're so against an existence of a Jewish state, where where would Jews should go the next time a country turns against them, as they do often? I mean, uh, we're seeing it in Europe. And in 2016, I was in uh, in University College London, where um, 300 protesters tried to shut me down in an, an event that I was uh, invited to speak at by Jewish students and. Um, I remember being there in the room and what you said just resonated with me so much because I remember being there with Jewish students and thinking um, I am in Europe and people are banging on the doors trying to bring the doors down just to shut me down um, in Europe and, and Jewish students are are fearing for their life. This it, It's really not, it, it, I, you know, I, I always thought that the Holocaust was a, was a lesson that um, that taught the world and specifically Europe, but it seems like never again it has become just a, a slogan rather than uh, um, um, a promise. And people who think that they are the good people, because I remember when 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 you and I were the last time we were together um, with um, with Lord Pollock, and we and we were standing on the ground of the Jew, like where, where the um, Holocaust memorial is meant to be. I got emotional because he said the same thing that my grandparents. I always say that my mother never mentally unpacked in terms of she's always in this thing of like fight, like flight. And he said that 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 the Jewish community always says, have a valid passport and have a backpack, uh, have a bag ready. And that is literally the mindset that my grandparents died with. And that's the mindset that my mum has. And for me to know that, to know, because I knew it was so weird. It's like, I, like, you know, I lived through the genocide of my, my own community and my own people to be called just because we were all one bloodline to like, they caught, so, they, so I, I was, I, I'm just saying to be, beforehand like I actually I happily wear wear their um kind of um tag for us which is the Jews of the Horn proudly because it was this one thing was like to call us Jewish was to dehumanize us and if you are and if you are Jewish then you can't be like Somali you can't be Muslim you can't be any of these things so therefore your death means nothing and that was literally like that's what the Holocaust was about you dehumanized people and said to them that actually they're not us, they're not German, they're not Polish, they're not any of these things, they're just something other. And if they do die, it doesn't really matter to us as as Germans, as um, as Polish, as Hungarians, as whatever. And that is literally what happens to this point. And I remember um, 
I think I, I might have told you, I might have told somebody else. So I was with one of my friends, and this was a very close friend to me. Um, we were all out somewhere, and then we and then and then we met this girl. Um, and I said, "Oh my god, uh, hey, how are you?" And then, and then, and then she had like a really cool name. And I said, "Oh, where, where are you from?" And she said, "Oh, I'm Israeli." And out of nowhere, my friend just was like, "Free Palestine." I was like, "What? <laughs> like what?" I was just, I was so gobsmacked. I was like, "What the hell is that going to do with anything right now?" It's like somebody, yeah. if, if somebody came to you and said, "I'm like Irish," we don't like. It's just like I just thought, "Why do you think?" Or did he say, "Oh, I'm pro Palestine" or something like? It was so like nonsensical in that conversation. I just thought, okay, this is this is where we're at now. Where we're basically in the middle of a restaurant in the middle of Mayfair. We're okay to say, like you know, to an Israeli woman. Like fuck you for being Israeli, like I thought. I just I was I was so shocked. It was just it was just like that. That is how and it's still like that. That that is how legitimate anti-Semitism in this country is. And people will say they're they're anti-Israel, they're anti-Zionist. It's like literally no, you're anti-Semitic because you cannot make. They cannot give you a statement about why they're anti-Israel without being anti-Semitic. So it's it's two sides of the same coin. So I just can't like I just can't bear anymore. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and there's a reason that over 95% of the world Jewish population is uh, is Zionist and only a small percentage, less than 5% are anti-Zionist because you really can't divorce Israel from Judaism. You know, being Jewish means that uh, every holiday we have, almost every holiday is about uh, about Israel, about Jerusalem. Um, we When we get married and break the glass, uh, we say, before we do it, we say, if I'll forget you, Jerusalem, I'll for- may I forget my right hand. Um, when we pray, like the most important prayer in Judaism, one of the most important prayer in Judaism is uh, Shema Israel, which means here or Israel. Uh, our all identity, we're very agriculture, very land-based, land-orientated religion, and, and it's all based on our connection to this land, our indigenous connection to this land. So it's really difficult to divorce the, the two, and I think that uh, what you're saying is spot on. I mean, if you're, uh, if you're an anti-Zionist, you wouldn't go around telling Jews or telling Israelis that uh, that you're an anti-Zionist when you meet them, and it's and it's very odd for someone to be against Israel alone and single out Israel while ignoring worse human rights violations. And Israel isn't perfect, but just like to be so overly focused and obsessed with bashing the only Jewish state always raises question marks with me. And I I just I never found an anti-Zionist that is um, that is really just anti-Zionist because I think there's you know. I personally, I think there's a case to be made for for a Palestine, for a, a state, a Palestinian state by Israel. But I've never heard a case for a Palestinian state that is not based solely solely on how Israel shouldn't exist. Yeah, no, uh, from from exactly. Uh, no, it's the same thing. So far, I believe in the two state solution. I believe, like you know, that 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 needs to be having that conversation. But there has to be that two state solution. Like you know, Israel still has the right to exist. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, I was I was speaking to uh, another friend of mine, and and I I remember this this really smart thing that they said, um, how the Jewish community uh, always feels like they are being told that they are sub that they are sorry that they are superhuman that you know they they as you mentioned that your friend told you that they're um um you know that they're super smart and they're uh, and we always you know characterize as this um, super wealthy and really um um you know not human it's really dehumanizing us yeah. but in a way of like uplifting us more than uh than human and i feel like the black community for a long time have been treated as subhuman in in white dominated societies 
Um, and I think that's like that's where we have this. Well, we're both being dehumanized, but in different ways. Is that does that make sense to you? No, no, I completely. So it's a it's the same thing with um with like African women. I think I would I would kind of like you know connect with African women. They just assume oh well they've survived everything, so they must therefore they must be like they must have some inbuilt resilience. And I said to somebody the other day, I said African women don't have an extra layer of resilience. They just had to get on with things because they had to. And it's the same, and it's the same with the Jewish community. It's the fact that for like, you know, for millenniums, not even for like, not for even for decades, but for millennia, they have been exiled, they've been persecuted. So what, basically what you do is then you stick together. There's nothing wrong with learning from experience and learning from history that you will always become the fall guy of things. So therefore you stick together, you work together. And then that becomes this whole kind of, oh, they're always giving money to each other, they're always doing this. And it's just like, some of the things that people believe, it's just like, it's just crazy. I'm just thinking like, you guys control the weather, you guys control all these things. And it's like, with with stereotypes, there's some kind of reality in it. But the, rea- the thing is, the fact that if the Jewish community is like, you know, being successful, it's because they have, they, they, they have had to be self-reliant and deal and work with each other. If African women are always surviving through civil war, through all these things, it's because nobody else is coming to rescue them. So it's that kind exactly. of, it's that kind of thing of like when people talk about FGM and culture. And I think I was saying to somebody the other day, I said, literally, it's it's torture, it's not culture. So the fact that I have to justify my humanity for you to care, like the whole point to him is like for four thousand years FGM has been happening, women have been mutilated, why should we end it now? I'm like, because we've it's it's 2020 and it's the and it's the time to actually say that like you know that black women's lives matter it's the same reason why we can and also black women's lives should matter to black people as well black men so it's the same with um with the jewish community it's the fact that we should and and anti-semitism now because for, for thousands of years the jewish community have been persecuted and have been have been used as a fall guy for everything yeah, that's that's really true. I also read somewhere that uh, uh, because uh, African women are seemed like there's a stereotype that they're strong women. They're not getting um, um, when they're giving birth. They're not getting uh, um, uh, what's what's it called? I forgot the medicine, the the, the pills that help you deal with pregnant with 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 labor. Yeah, more. Um, yeah, more. It's like you're 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 like um, three times in the UK more likely to die you're a black woman giving birth and five times more likely in the US. And this is even if you're a black woman with an associate degree, um, you're, you're more likely to die than a white woman in uh, for like a trailer, like from like a white working class woman. And this is, and you can see this from, um, what's her name? Um, Serena Williams, where when she was giving birth, almost died. And she kept on saying, because they just think we don't feel pain because nobody's actually, because black women have never been allowed to be vulnerable. And I think that is the key thing. It's like when I always meet, like when I date outside my race um, and like, you know, and I date like non, like, you know, non-Somali men or non-black men, it's in this kind of conversation of the fact that they assume me to be some kind of like super strong, sassy woman. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, if you punch me in the face, I like, you know, I will hurt. And I will bleed. So there is this notion that black women are, are like, you know, are superhuman. But it was just because we were never allowed. And even if we did cry, who the hell cared enough to listen? Right, right. Well, as uh, um, the marching from Venice was the the line, if you prick us, we we shall bleed. Um, an anti-Semitic play, but but still, I mean, it's really true. It's uh, um, uh, the 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 idea of dehumanization is is all meant for. Um, for us to get to a point that uh, harming those communities that are being dehumanized 
uh, will be legitimized. And I think that's what we've seen with the Holocaust. That's what we've seen with other genocides um, in in uh, in Africa and in other places. That um, we got to a point that people are being so dehumanized that violence against them is justified. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and we and we always make it into an anthropological thing rather than a humanity thing. And I was um I I think one of the most powerful um kind of social media channels or social media accounts is the Holocaust, um, the Auschwitz, the Auschwitz account on Twitter. And sometimes yeah. you just have to like, because they humanize people and it's the death. And I'm just thinking like, look, the only crime this person committed is to be Jewish. Right. And there was a baby who was like three months old. And imagine like, you know, it's just, I just, I just can't, well, I can, because I lived it and I saw it through the, like, you know, through what happened with the, what the Somalis did in Somaliland, I've lived it and I live it every day. And even on like, on Twitter, when I say something about um, Israel or when I say something about Somaliland, I'm always like, you know, just dehumanized and called all these things. So I'm like, literally all I just said is the fact that I'm from Somaliland. Why is that a big issue? All I've just said is the fact that Israel has the right to exist or the fact that Jewish people are not the devils. It's like, and that then just basically just like unleashes this tirade of like, of things. And I was saying to you before, it's like, there are generations of young ethnic people in this country who are, who are not hearing anything that is um, pro-Israel or pro-Jew or the Jewish community in their lives. And they're, and they're going to grow up to be like, the next generations of people that are working this like you know in, in the public sector most of them in health and they are going to come in with like extremely anti-semitic views because they've never that's never been tested yeah yeah and i mean I, that's that's why i do what i do and i and i and that's why and i'm sure i know that's why you're although you're receiving this harassment online you're still uh, very uh, proud of your opinions and you're very open about them so on behalf of the Jewish community, and and um, I'm sure I'm speaking for at least 95 or 97 percent of them, uh, I want to thank you for being an ally for us, and I uh, I can promise you that I'll always stand by you, and um, and inshallah one day if you'll get to the United Nations and you'll have uh, a chance to speak to uh, all world leaders, um, I want to know what will be uh, the most important messages that you would want to relay to them. Um. I would, I would say for me at the moment, it's about investing in Africa, Africa's female future, but um, having like, hopefully we'll do that. But I would just think that I like, you know, evil is not born, evil is created. And we do that through our inability to question and our inability to actually speak the truth. And I, and I think once we speak the truth to our loved ones, then we can speak the truth to everybody and I know that, and I because because I know that on a day to day basis, it's like, it's my gut feeling that I sit there with people that I love, be it, um, and they'll say something anti Semitic or they'll say something racist, but most of the time anti Semitic. And I have to stop and I have to say, that is not okay. And to be able to say that, I think is the most fundamental thing. And I and 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 I do that with like you know with with the homophobic things and everything else that I said. And I've got I've got like incredibly uh, beautiful and bright nieces and cousins and I know every single day that everything like you know that there's so much hate that's put into their minds and so much hate that's put into their heart but from a position of love and I just find that really really like soul destroying so I want to be able to be able like you know for us to speak the truth and to say that hate is something that we consume because those that we love give it to us and we need to be able to stop that so yeah I think 
the UN could be a great beacon of hope and I hope it exists for, for a long time in order to um, tell the stories of when we made mistakes and tell the stories of how we can undo those things and how we can kind of share love. So yeah, I know it's a bit it's a bit simplistic, but I, I, I think words have a lot more power than anything else and each and every person that sits in the UN and that works there and the powers that they have, have the ability to be able to spread love and so that's I think that's what I would just say to them is that they can they can choose love and that each and every one of them knows the truth and then know that like you know that racism in any form doesn't um do any of us any um any favors and we need to stop that and the most and the most basic and primitive um form of racism is anti-semitism and it's mildest it's like you know it's scarred humanity since its beginning and it needs to end and for me that's like that is my that is my biggest thing it's like once we end and and um, anti-semitism it's a little bit like once we end fgm all forms of gender-based violence will cease to exist because we'll actually have a principle grounding on equality and really ending the most basic form of abuse against women and once we end anti-semitism we will end all forms of racism and discrimination it's as simple as that it's like a world where anti-Semitism and FGM exist is a world which will not exist in a good form. Wow, that's that's amazing. As my as my Iraqi grandmother always says, inshallah, amen, when she really agrees with something. So I'm I'm totally with you. Thank you for that. That's 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 amazing. I mean, yeah, I, no, I just... and, I'm, and I'm really I'm really actually I'm really excited to come to Israel and um, inshallah it will, it will happen in January or February. Um, and I'm also really excited to see you at the UN. I'm, do you know what? I'm really really excited to work with Israel because I do actually think that Israel is the continent of Africa's biggest ally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we can replicate that resilience and that self determination across the continent, and that and that ability to actually, even though you get so much hate from your neighbors, you actually just give love. I think that's there's um there's I think that's the I think that's the principle of or that's the foundation of what I've seen from Israelis um across the world. It's like I think that's I think that's what African countries and specifically my birthplace of Somaliland could really learn from you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you come into Israel, I'm gonna take you to my uh, Iraqi grandmother for lunch. She's making the most delicious food, uh, Iraqi Jewish food that is just the best. So we're gonna do that for sure. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> get ready. Um, so a couple more questions before I'm letting you go. Um, what's your plan for the next ten years? Oh my god, ten years, inshallah. Like, I <laughs> the next ten years, like I really wanna, like you know, I really wanna fall in love and get married and have babies. That's kind of my principal aim now that I've spent like almost a decade fighting activism. But I think um, the older I've got, the more grounded I've got, and the more and the more kind of clear my vision has become about the fact that I do really think that these two things are like you know coexist, like um, anti-Semitism and FGM. So I think we need to end those two forms of like primitive and basic hates of people or abuse um so to basically get that to that front and what what i would wish for like i'm not sure what my plans are apart from wanting to have babies and get married um but i think what i would hope for is honestly a world where the the idea and and the existence of the state of israel and the jewish people is not a controversial one um a world where like millions of girls in Africa are free from FGM and 
that is I think that I think that's I think that's what utopia really looks like to me it's like when we've like when I can say the word the word I'm going to Israel without somebody cursing me or somebody giving me a whole line about um how it's like you know like you know how it's a horrible state and it shouldn't exist and then when I talk about FGM and I want people to say my god I can't believe we had to fight against that I can't believe that was actually a thing so that's that's my ultimate hope for the next um kind of 10 years amazing well i mean i'll take that as uh you know ending gender discrimination ending racism ending anti-semitism um and i think just um it should be basic but uh, it's very sad that we're um uh, at this stage into 2020 um what can we do to support your work and how can we follow you um so i'm on twitter um but to bag to support my work go to the five foundation if anybody has any way to kind of fund and support please do that but i think also just like i really want to be able to change the narrative of how we do i want to i want to i want to change the like the real connection between ending anti-semitism and all forms of racism ending FGM ends all forms of gender-based violence. It's, 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 a, it's, it's the beginning of that. But I would love, I would love, um, like, you know, the Israeli community, the Israeli population, the Israeli community, Jewish community to really be able to get behind ending FGM and show the world that we can be single-minded and actually do things. Because I think, like, like it's, 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 it's the same thing because I don't fit many of the people on the left's idea of what, um, an activist is I never get credit for the things that I do and I would love to see that like you know when FGM ended the, like you know the largest role was played by um Jewish and Israeli um the the Jewish community and the Israeli population I think that would really um make me smile and really make me happy because I know I know it's like one of those things the fact that um most 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 jewish people well if not all um go out there just like most like people of islam that follow their faith correctly to do good to serve and i think there's nothing better to serve um humanity than ending this like in a really horrible practice that is done to young girls and also it would kind of piss they would kind of piss the left off if like you know if FGM was ended by <laughs> by the Jewish community. I think I don't know. I, I call me petty, but I think that would make me really happy. I love it. I'm yeah. I'm all about pettiness. Um, but listen, I'm going to um, if you are listening to us, please uh, look in the description. I'm going to put a link to uh, uh, to Nimiko's uh, Five Foundation, um, where you can go and support whatever you can um, to support this important cause that I think um, is dear to everyone. I mean, everyone should care about that and we should absolutely support that. Uh, and I'm going to also put a link to your um, social media so people can follow you. Uh, Nimiko, on a personal note, I mean, I adore you. I think you are incredible. I'm going to continue supporting you for many, many years um, and following you. And I think you're just incredible. So uh, thank you for your time and everything you're doing. Um, and it's just really a, a privilege to spend an hour speaking with you, but also privilege to know you and uh, and best of luck with everything you're doing. Everything you're doing is so important. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you very much, my brother. I love you too as well. I think you're like the best thing that's happened to me in 2020.